Can the economy and the environment exist together, as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was fond of saying, or do you have to settle for one or the other? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe for Unpublished Ottawa. I'm Ed Hand. The Kinder Morgan Pipeline expansion from Edmonton to Vancouver is a $7 billion-plus project that would see the current pipeline twinned with a new one to more than double the capacity to get the oil sands or bitumen to markets outside of the U.S. That would mean a seven-fold increase in tanker traffic out of Burrard Inlet, which environmentalists worry about the impact on the aquaculture. Of course, visions of the Exxon Valdez dance in their heads. The premiers of both Alberta and B.C. are turning up the heat on the issue to get the point across. Alberta's Rachel Notley signed on to the federal government's climate change plan in exchange for approval of the pipeline. B.C. NDP Premier John Horgan, he's against the pipeline, as is the B.C. Green Party, which is propping up Horgan's government. Prime Minister Trudeau held a tete-a-tete with both to try and get consensus but nothing was resolved. And to add more gasoline to the fire, Kinder Morgan is spending any more spending on the project as it grows frustrated with the political tug-of-war, musing aloud, this project may never happen. We're going to take a look at the issue that has pitted province against province, even First Nations group against other First Nations. Coming up on the podcast, we'll chat with Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who's concerned the federal and provincial governments will use tax dollars to appease Kinder Morgan. Also joining us on the Unpublished Cafe is Dan McTeague of GasBuddies.com. He's an 18-year veteran as an MP on the Hill, as well as a petroleum industry analyst, and I'd like to hear from him why Canada isn't refining its own instead of selling it at a lower cost to be refined outside the country. Coming up as well on the podcast is Michael D'Souza of the National Observer, who has been all over this issue. First, I'm pleased to be joined by Elizabeth May, leader of the Federal Green Party, who was arrested for protesting against the pipeline, and she joins us now from Parliament Hill. Now, Elizabeth, I'll say I'm not really a big fan of all this rhetoric swing, swirling around this issue, but from your perspective, is this pipeline in the national interest? Is this building the nation? No, it's definitely not. And, and one of the things that's dispiriting for me is having been an intervener uh, before the National Energy Board on the Kinder Morgan process from 2014 to 2016. I'm very familiar with what the NEB looked at and what they didn't look at. Uh, there was no assessment of whether this was in what any Canadian would consider the national interest. For instance, will it create more jobs than it kills? It's a fundamental question. Will this project create jobs? Uh, the NEB not only didn't look at it, it actually refused to accept evidence from the largest union in northern Alberta, Unifor. Unifor was arguing against building Kinder Morgan because of the direct threat to jobs in the last remaining refinery in the Burnaby area. And the National Energy Board said flat out, jobs and the economy are outside the mandate of the NEB to consider. Uh, there's never been any evidence that building this pipeline is in the national interest in any way that any Canadian would understand the term. Is it, you know, on a cost-benefit analysis, is it good for Canada? There is no study by anyone that says it is. So it's very frustrating to hear this this claim that a project that poses such significant risks to the economy of British Columbia is somehow in the national interest, leaving aside uh, the notion that creating uh, more demand for a very carbon-intensive product, being bitumen out of the oil sands, is uh, in anyone's interest when we're in a climate crisis.
You know, Elizabeth, we, in uh, over the last couple of days, we've been reading about, especially in the National Observer, that the, uh, the approval was rigged in the first place. And yeah. it seems there's a lot of backroom deals. Alberta signs on for the carbon tax for the approval of the pipeline. And that comes out after the fact as well. That's right. I suspected that at the time. And I tell you, it's, it's surprising to me that Justin Trudeau now uses this as a defense. I suspected it because there appeared to be um, a, a basically a, a satisfaction of political wants and needs without regard uh, to the, the evidence that was before the tribunal or that, the, or that any independent scientists would have considered important or indigenous rights. So the way the trade went was much more than uh, the one we know about, which Justin Trudeau has now made a public statement. I, as I said, I suspected that was what had happened, uh, was that uh, the federal liberal backroom folks decided Rachel Notley will accept a carbon price if we give her Kinder Morgan. And if Rachel Notley needs a Kinder Morgan pipeline, how do we get, at that time, former British Columbia Premier Christy Clark to accept the Kinder Morgan pipeline, considering that the people of B.C. are mostly against it, and the B.C. government had set down five conditions before allowing Kinder Morgan to go through, and those five conditions weren't met. Well, there were more trades than horse trading behind the scenes. Uh, To get Rachel Notley to agree to a carbon price... Uh, Trudeau's back room gave her Kinder Morgan pipeline, and gave, to get Christy Clark to accept the Kinder Morgan pipeline, they gave Christy Clark the Site C dam permits, plus the LNG facility uh, on uh, Lelo Island that Patronus from Malaysia wanted, plus uh, wood fiber LNG at uh, in Squamish, BC. Uh, it, very lucky for for the world and carbon emissions, the Malaysian multinational Patronus decided not to go ahead, but they got the permits. So you you have this um, incredibly um, uh, fact free set of political trade-offs that, you know, Rachel needs a pipeline, we'll give Rachel a pipeline, we'll give Christy her dam and a bunch of LNG facilities, and then when we've done all that, we can get a carbon price, which won't have enough impact to offset the new greenhouse gas expansion that was approved in the set of trade-offs. It's, it's really, dis- I have to say, depressing, because this isn't how public policy should be made. As I said, up till when uh, Justin Trudeau said, look, Kinder Morgan pipeline is part of our climate plan. That was a that was quite a shock because obviously expanding greenhouse gases can't be part of a climate plan because climate plans have to be about reducing greenhouse gases, not saying we're going to expand greenhouse gases because that lets us have this political check mark next to a political platform promise from the liberals that said we're going to put in place a carbon price. I'm all for carbon prices. But it becomes an exercise in uh, continuing to dig a hole instead of getting out of the hole when when what you're doing is increasing greenhouse gases uh, and claiming it's part of a carbon reduction plan. It's it's one of those pieces of um, political contradiction in embracing two uh, mutually inconsistent goals at the same time that, that leaves your head spinning. Elizabeth May is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe as we talk about the Kinder Morgan pipeline. And let's talk First Nations issues. We've got some some uh, communities, uh, First Nations communities that have signed on, others that have not. And But the, the thing I, I'm kind of concerned about is it, it's almost uh, the, the ones who have agreed to it can't talk about it publicly. Kinder Morgan has got them basically... Mm-hmm. 
shut up. Well, yes, um, and you have to, I, you know, I, I'm, and other First Nations chiefs, such as the chief of the Tsleil-Waututh, who was testifying recently uh, before the uh, committee looking at um, the uh, the new environmental assessment legislation, and, and Chief Thomas was saying, look, I'm not going to criticize other First Nations. They make the decisions that they have made. But the reality is that you've got a number of communities, First Nations, that are very poor. Kinder Morgan offered them money to sign on to a benefit agreement. Uh, many of them aren't really in favor of the pipeline. They, they needed the money. They're kind of hoping, you know, they're, the, the, if, if the Tsleil-Waututh, the Musqueam, the Squamish, and other First Nations win in court, uh, in my own community, uh, four First Nations communities are on the Saanich Peninsula within Saanich Gulf Islands, uh, very strongly opposed to this project. Their constitutionally enshrined rights under the Douglas Treaties have not been respected. In fact, that they haven't been consulted at all about Douglas Treaty rights. So there's, you might think there's there's less split than you would think. It, it's some community, and everybody, all First Nations respect each other, and they respect that some have signed on to this. Doesn't mean they're in favor of it necessarily. It's just they signed on; they're going to get a co-benefit agreement. But if the uh, Slaywatoos, the Musqueam, the Squamish, the Sartlet, and, the, and other First Nations succeed to get the court's ruling that these permits were violating, uh, were issued violating the constitutional Constitution of Canada and constitutionally enshrined rights under Section 35, they're not going to be unhappy. They just they just needed the money. So it's a very complicated issue and one where um, the exploitation, uh, I find it exploitative, of uh, Trudeau cabinet ministers to say, look, there's all these First Nations for the pipeline, as though that discounts the fundamental rights of the indigenous peoples of the, the particularly the Tsleil-Waututh, the Musqueam, and the Squamish, whose lands are most affected by, by well, and the Sartlem, but the tanker traffic, the building of the pipeline, the tank farms, all of those things uh, disproportionately affect those First Nations that are now in court. And and that's that's something that doesn't come through with this numbers game that Jim Carr likes to engage in of how many First Nations have signed an agreement with Kinder Morgan, which is not an answer at all to the question of First Nations engagement, proper consultation, and respect to the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. You know, I, I'm wondering, uh, Kinder Morgan uh, stopped or announced they were stopping unnecessary spending on the project till it gets the green light, and that certainly has ramped up the rhetoric in, in this issue. I'm wondering, do they not have a foot to stand on under the North American Free Trade Agreement? Well, the North American Free Trade Agreement, unfortunately, the piece that people talk about a lot, uh, there's two sections. One is the energy chapter of NAFTA, which is unchanged. No one suggested changing it in these negotiations. Uh, and I think the energy chapter of NAFTA is most unfortunate because what Canada agreed to when NAFTA was accepted was that whatever proportion of our energy we exported to the U.S. as a as a statement of percentage, proportion, not not barrels, not megawatts, but whatever proportion of our energy generation we export to the U.S. must be maintained in perpetuity. So, you know, most of our energy, 60% or whatever of natural gas, um, a lot of what we produce, most of what we produce out of the oil sands is going to the U.S. It's not for domestic use. So you end up you end up saying, okay, what what that proportion. 60%, 70%, whatever it is, must be maintained in perpetuity in continuing to sell that to the U.S. So that undermines Canadian energy security. If, if your supply of that particular source of energy is declining, whatever your, you know, whatever 100% of your production is, uh, 
you've continued you continue to have a, an obligation under NAFTA to export the majority to the U.S. Meanwhile, there's another portion of NAFTA, which ironically Donald Trump wants to get rid of. We should absolutely grab with both hands Trump's proposal to get rid of it is what's uh, referred to as Chapter 11 of NAFTA, which is the investor state provision Mm -hmm. that allows foreign corporations to bring suits against Canada. Not if we've done anything unfair. And this is key. It's not a question of unfairness or having an anti-trade animus. It's just that whatever uh, federal, provincial, municipal, or even First Nations government or court has done to limit the expectation of profits for a corporation from the U.S. under NAFTA, or technically Mexico, but that's never happened, they can bring uh, suits against us in a secret tribunal, no public involvement, no public access, uh, for damages if a decision of our government has reduced their expectation of profits. Canada has lost many of these cases, um, decisions made based on good science, based on what's healthy for Canadians, have been essentially the source of very punitive judgments against Canada through these secret tribunals. So whether or not Justin Trudeau offers to bail out Kinder Morgan, whether or whatever happens, uh, Kinder Morgan, if, if they decide... And if they make the decision they can't go ahead, I don't know how they sue us. But if a level of government finally says, look, you can't go ahead, they can bring one of these secret tribunal complaints. I mean, they won't be the first. They won't be the last because the the very nature of investor state dispute resolution under Chapter 11, and Chapter 11 of NAFTA was the first to include this kind of provision, but now we have dozens of treaties like this. We even have a secret tri- uh, tribunal agreement with the People's Republic of China that People's Republic of China can bring secret um, charges against Canada in secret tribunals if we make a decision that affects the expectation of profits of a state-owned enterprise of the People's Republic of China. These are all over the place now, and they are inherently uh, not just anti-democratic, as as one of my uh, trade lawyer friends, Stephen Schreiben, says, they they are fundamentally corrosive to democracy because they give foreign corporations superior rights over domestic corporations and over governments in being able to bring charges and uh, and uh, and get damages in the millions of dollars against the government of Canada even when the thing we have done is defensible on the science not based on trying to be protectionist it's just a decision made by a good sensible democracy to protect the public health or the environment or whatever. So that piece of this gets talked about a lot. Is is Kinder Morgan setting itself up for a Chapter 11 case? Yeah, it, it doesn't have to do much to set itself up because the, the, the bar is so low in terms of Chapter 11 disputes. I, I think it's more likely that Kinder Morgan is just hoping to distract people by these threats from the looming court cases where we're waiting for a decision from the Federal Court of Appeal from 15 different cases that were consolidated by the Federal Court of Appeal, and they were heard in the first two weeks of October 2017. And that's uh, that's a really um, significant uh, and important um, test of whether the permits that were issued by Trudeau's government were, in fact, issued uh, illegally. Elizabeth, I want to thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for this, Ed. Talk to you soon. Will do. Bye-bye. Elizabeth May is the leader of the Federal Green Party.
While the Kinder Morgan pipeline has sparked fury on both sides of the debate, the thought of the federal or Alberta governments getting involved financially has sparked fury or fear from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Aaron Woodrick is the federal director of that group, and he joins us now. And Aaron, does the federation support this pipeline? Yes, actually, Ed, we do support the, the pipeline. We uh, support the project. Our concern is whether or not taxpayers are going to get involved in it. And that puts us in a unique spot. A lot of folks support the pipeline, also support uh, taxpayer support for it. And po- folks who don't like the pipeline uh, don't want taxpayer money going to it. But we're uh, half and half there. We want the pipeline. We just don't think taxpayers should be subsidizing it. All right. And, and uh, why don't you think they should be subsidizing well, first off, it's not necessary. Uh, the problem that Kinder Morgan is facing in building this pipeline is a political problem. Uh, they are confident in the project on its merits from a business standpoint. Uh, their concern when they raised the alarm a couple of weeks ago was that there are political obstacles in the way to getting it built. And so we think the most important thing that the federal government can do is start to give Kinder Morgan assurances politically that they will enforce the law uh, and make sure that the pipeline is permitted to get built. Do you feel this is a project in the national interest? This is nation building? Yeah, I think it's fair to say, I mean, the debate about jurisdiction is uh, whether or not it crosses a provincial boundary. This is just like a highway or bridge that goes between two provinces. If the pipeline crosses a provincial border, um, it's fairly uh, uncontroversial to say that it's uh, federal jurisdiction. Uh, the problem, of course, is the government of British Columbia is making noises that it may try to uh, block the project uh, and bring, a, for example, a file a court injunction uh, or, or seek a reference to see whether or not they can stop the pipeline. That is the problem that I think Kinder Morgan has identified. Um, and and the, the reason that we had sounded the alarm over a bailout was Kinder Morgan never asked for a bailout. They never said they needed taxpayer help. Uh, they wanted uh, assurances that, that it would could get built, not that they needed help in the form of financial assistance. You know, in terms of making this a, a, a nation-building project, and, and personally, I don't see that. How, how do you see the rest of the country benefiting from a pipeline running from Edmonton to Vancouver? How does that help somebody in Charlottetown? Yeah, look, there are there are the, all the economic spinoff arguments about the uh, project uh, are based on jobs that are created downstream. Um, and so, you know, there are going to be people in other parts of the country that will benefit. But our, our point is, if that's true, it doesn't need a bailout. It will live or die on its own merits. You know, we oppose the Bombardier bailout, Ed. We oppose the General Motors Chrysler bailout, and we oppose bailing out a pipeline as well. Do you think this this project will be beneficial for the economy? Yeah, I think uh, I think it would be. And uh, the, the reality is, if it isn't, then that's going to be Kinder Morgan's problem and not taxpayers' problem. So if it does well, they can make money, more power to them. Uh, but if it doesn't do well and there are losses, they are going to bear the cost and it's not going to be Canadian taxpayers that have to fulfill. Aaron Woodrick is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation as we talk about the Kinder Morgan pipeline and the Federation's concern primarily is if any tax dollars, federal or provincial, Alberta, uh, go into that project. And one of the, the things about that is, well, government's not really great at running operations in the private sector, are they? No. I mean, if you look at even the areas in which they have a monopoly, you know, whether it's Canada Post, whether it's running the trains, uh, you know, as I think I pointed out in an op-ed I wrote, most city governments can't even turn a profit running a golf course. I think it is probably a bad idea for governments to get involved with this pipeline. And in fact, up until a few weeks ago, no one had even floated that possibility. It hadn't even been conceived uh, that uh, government would get involved. So I think it's a very bad idea to start thinking about it now. Would you agree that BC has all the risk and no reward? 
Yeah, no, I think they get some reward. I think that they don't get as much reward as Alberta does. There, We can't forget also there are some First Nations groups that have signed on uh, to support the pipeline. In fact, I believe all the groups over whose territory the pipeline crosses uh, have supported the groups because there are jobs involved. But yes, in terms of uh, spillage, I think British Columbia has a reasonable argument, but there is a difference between saying, you know, we want to take the necessary measures to make this as safe as possible versus saying under no circumstances ever anywhere do we want to build a pipeline. From your perspective, does Kinder Morgan have a, um, I guess, a foot to stand under under uh, NAFTA? Uh, that is going to be interesting because uh, it, I think, it largely turns on whether or not the British Columbia government is breaking the law. If they are acting within their own powers, uh, governments are sovereign under NAFTA. As long as they are not acting in a way as to only discriminate against American companies, that is to say, if a Canadian company came along and tried to build a pipeline and the government let them then I think Kinder Morgan would have a, a serious uh, case. Uh, if it is the government of BC somehow acting within its own uh, legal right, which in this case I don't see, uh, then uh, then Kinder Morgan would not have a case. Does the, uh, I guess the to and fro going between Alberta and, and BC and uh, the fact that Kinder Morgan is uh, suspending all non-essential spending, does this send a message outside our borders that Canada isn't open for business? I think that is the bigger picture danger here, Ed, is that uh, this may just be one pipeline and whether it lives or die, I mean, it would be nice to get built. If it doesn't, the sky may not fall. But the problem is it does send a very bad signal. Canada is already struggling to attract foreign direct investment. It has dropped off in the last few years. Obviously, there have been tax cuts south of the border. Um, There's also political pressure from the Trump administration for American companies to invest at home. And they are the number one investors in Canada. Half of our foreign direct investment comes from American companies. So uh, we need to be very careful here that we don't start sending the signal that, yeah, Canada talks a a good game about being open for business, but in reality, it's very hard to ever actually get anything built here. Aaron, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ed. Aaron Woodrick is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, which supports the pipeline, but not having any tax dollars invested in the project. When you look at the financials of this project, a $7.6 billion investment by Kinder Morgan, it's a lot of coin. But all it gets you is uh, bitumen to Tidewater. If Canada has this huge resource in the oil sands, I'd like to know why we're shipping out the raw resource instead of creating employment by having it refined here. Dan McTagg is a senior petroleum analyst with GasBuddies.com, spent 18 years on the Hill as an AMP, and he joins us now. And Dan, uh, you've been doing a lot of media lately with the U.S. What do they want to know? Well, I think they're looking at the fact that Canada has a product that they desperately need. Uh, U.S. producers have become the miracle in uh, uh, in the energy sector because they've been able to turn around a country that was relying on almost all of, of uh, the world for its uh, oil imports to a point where it's now become uh, a net exporter of oil. But what it's exporting, what it's producing, what it's fracking, what it's uh, pulling out of the ground uh, is light, tight shale oil. I and mean, that may sound great, but unfortunately, most refineries uh, find that it's uh, it lacks the elements uh, to make higher al- value-added goods. You can't, for instance, in most instances, um, make diesel out of uh, light tight oil. So the U.S. is shipping off a lot of this product, but they are asking the question, what gives with Canada? Why aren't you getting your product into our market, or for that matter, anyone else around the world? And the fact is that uh, of all the oils in the world, and here I'm looking at the uh, various grades of oil, uh, countries that are basket cases like Venezuela, Nigeria, to a lesser extent, uh, as far as economics are concerned, we are getting far less than what they're getting for their oil. We're barely struggling at $46, $47 a barrel. They, in turn, are getting upwards of 70 so rather 65 to 70 to $73. And that means that for everything we ship, 
all 3 million barrels that we are able to get to market with existing infrastructure, we're taking about a $21 a barrel discount, good enough for about a $16 billion loss in economic activity for Canada. And that's why I think a lot of Americans are scratching their heads saying, you know, with Canada, we can get our product to market. What gives uh, north of the border? You know, I, I, we talk about getting a product to market. I, I wonder why don't we get a refined product to market? Well, it's a good question. Uh, refineries, uh, except for Sturgeon Lake and outside of Edmonton, which is heavily financed by the Alberta government, you haven't seen a refinery built in Canada. Uh, you quite rightly pointed out my years in politics. Uh, I spent half of that trying to stop the uh, mergers and the shutdowns of existing refineries that we had, knowing that we would possibly paint ourselves into a corner at some point with uh, not enough product being uh, distributed, especially if we can't do, do it by pipelines. Uh, but we are in a situation where building a refinery this day and age is not only cost-intensive, in other words, extremely expensive, you've pretty much destroyed the environment and climate for investment in Canada, not just with the shenanigans going on with environmentalists using every, uh, you know, every tool in their, in their weapon, in their, their armory to uh, stop the pipeline. But think about it this way. The federal government is in the process of proposing 30 percent uh, reductions in emissions for all industrial emitters in Canada. That means that uh, refineries that have already gone through several phases of cleaning up their act uh, over the past several years are going to be required to achieve a level of uh, refinery uh, emissions that exists exactly nowhere in the world. And that means that uh, no one's going to invest money in Canada to build a refinery, even if you had all the oil you could use and could process it here. The reality for us is that, uh, you know, we have made a choice in Canada. We want to go green. There's a massive cost to that. And I think as people start to understand what that really means, in other words, pie in the sky type of uh, approaches to climate, we're going to wind up uh, doing a lot of damage to the economy and the bottom line for consumers. They're starting to see that today. I guess the uh, debate between Alberta and B.C., and the federal government having to get uh, involved as well. Does this send the message outside uh, Canada that we're not open for business? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, $50 billion in investments have already been withdrawn. If you go to Alberta, I haven't been there in several weeks, but uh, companies that I know that were quite vibrant are cutting back, have cut back even further. Some are facing serious bankruptcy. It's not a pretty situation. From the promise of the 1990s that helped Canada get out of its terrible economic situation that we were in in the early 90s, one of the main reasons we got out of that was because we were able to get our oil to market. Uh, we are able to do it in a, in a way that uh, used our, uh, you know, used our uh, pipeline infrastructure uh, to provide and supply America and potentially other nations with uh, an abundance of uh, fuel and get uh, America, North America away from relying on the vagaries of OPEC. Uh, that is no longer the case. We have said to the world, we're really not interested in fossil fuels. We want to keep it in the ground. Now, not every Canadian said this. In fact, the majority of Canadians don't really know much about this, but they certainly see it now in terms of gas prices. And let me be really specific on that point. One of the main problems with losing so much value in selling your oil, as we are seeing today, discounting by a third, is that it's impacting negatively the value of the Canadian dollar versus the U.S. greenback. The U.S. dollar is the benchmark for all international commodities as far as currency, as far as the mode of exchange is concerned. When you give away 28 cents on every dollar, you are also increasing the price of all commodities in Canada, most notably gasoline. In other words, if we were selling oil like we were years ago, getting pretty much international prices for oil as we did in 2010 or 2008, uh, you'd be saving about 15 cents a litre today. But the fact is oil is heading up 
prices are going up and the Canadian dollar is no longer in a position to protect us or shield us. And that's because you have a small, very committed group of people in this country funded by foreign entities that are trying to block our number one resource from getting to market, which the world really, truly does want. Which foreign entities are we talking about? I see a lot of First Nations folks there. I wouldn't say that they would yeah. be... If you look at some of the work that's been done, you'll find Tide's organization, you'll find uh, Greenpeace, uh, you'll find uh, Rockefeller Institute. These things are using Canadian organizations. They're funding them to do the protests. There's no doubt people believe that this is an important thing to do. But generally speaking, the money that is uh, being uh, arranged, the Dogwood Foundation, which is currently very controversial, in the press today, uh, who's mm-hmm. trying to hire some students for the youth intern in the youth summership uh, internship program? Uh, those are all funded by uh, outside organizations, Tides in particular. So make no mistake, uh, Canada is a soft target. There is very little debate in terms of who is funding it. We know why they're funding it. They want to shut down the Canadian oil industry. But what's interesting is that Canadians seem to be to be oblivious to this. At least they were up until a few weeks ago. Gas prices started to move up. We're now seeing a, a massive reversal in public opinion. Uh, fully, a majority of people two months ago in BC opposed the pipeline. Uh, within a very short period of time, as gas prices have edged towards a dollar sixty a liter, I think people are starting to take a second guess, second look at this, and realizing that uh, economic unaffordability is a major reason why a lot of uh, economic activity is leaving that region. And the likelihood is that we could see that spread right across Canada because. Uh, oil isn't just about Alberta or Saskatchewan or British Columbia. Oil is also about the one, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, the four billion dollar industry that it presents for here us here in Ontario. Uh, the sixteen hundred uh, companies who rely on that industry. There's a lot at stake here, but most importantly, and I think this is why the federal government is very nervous, is that uh, it recognizes that you can't lose fifty billion dollars in economic activity. Uh, and continue down this road of throwing away one of your most important engines of economic growth without severe negative consequences, not to mention the fact that this whole thing is putting at risk their climate change uh, process. Dan McTagg is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's a senior petroleum industry analyst with GasBuddies.com, a former uh, MP as well for 18 years. And, And from your perspective, does Kinder Morgan have a leg to stand on through NAFTA? Oh, very much so. Uh, I think that's all the reason why the federal government is uh, is involved with ensuring that uh, they mitigate any potential fallout. Uh, you know, you've given this company's acted in good faith. It has gone to the federal government over two and a half years, got the approval, 157 conditions, proceeded uh, uh, performing its due diligence, spent a billion and a half dollars up to this point already, has made all the commitments, and suddenly there's a change in government in British Columbia in which you have a left-leaning NDP taking over by thin, you know, the, basically the skin of their teeth, still not having enough seats to take over and having to work with three green seats who are basically a coalition and, bas- and, and essentially saying the fossil fuel industry in Canada is over. Uh, that would be a little bit like saying the asphalt uh, shingles or fiberglass shingles you have in your roof will disappear. The pavement on your road should disappear. The cement everywhere that you walk on or the bicycle tires that you use, all of those things that have brought us the standard of living in which you and I are living, um, the, the communications devices, my glasses, etc. Once we abandon this industry, there is no replacement. What there is is chaos. And what there is is a sure recipe that most of us are going to wind up in the state of nature eating acorns uh, and wearing animal skins, which I think is uh, a retrograde step backwards. But that's the politics of the left. Do you see this Kinder Morgan pipeline as a nation-building exercise, as we've heard before? I think any pipeline is a nation-building exercise. I wish uh, that uh, the um, 
energy east process had not been uh, vandalized by uh, my former colleague Denis Coderre and his gang of uh, merry men who basically came in and uh, you know uh, threatened violence in order to get their point across. Again, a small, determined, well-funded militant group uh, willing to do things that uh, really, I think, caused a lot of us to rethink uh, the validity of our democratic institutions and our regulatory processes, which are done in a way that uh, is thought out, is involved, is democratic, and yet you have a small group of people being able to disturb uh, what would otherwise been a no-brainer. This pipeline exists through two-thirds of the country already. Uh, more importantly, uh, it would have brought uh, valuable oil uh, to uh, from the west to the east, where we have waiting refineries that could process it, or to tidewaters to send whatever we don't use to uh, refineries in and around the world. Uh, right now, of course, uh, we have uh, uh, no refineries in places like, uh, or few refineries in places like Vancouver, and we are importing a lot of our oil on the wet east coast of Canada. It makes absolutely no sense, given that we have the infrastructure, that we have the capacity, we had the investment environment. What we lacked uh, was attention to a group of miscreants bent on economic vandalism based on really false science. Dan McTagg is a senior petroleum industry analyst and the man behind GasBuddies.com. Dan, thanks for joining us. Oh, Ed, thanks for having me and a pleasure. And uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that this uh, doesn't turn into a constitutional crisis. Yeah, no kidding. All right. All the best, Dan. Take care, Ed. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Unpublished Cafe for Unpublished Ottawa. I'm Ed Hand, and we're talking about the Trans Mountain Kinder Morgan Pipeline. And it's been the prime focus for Mike D'Souza, managing editor of the National Observer, and he's broken many angles on this story, and he joins me in the studio. And, uh, Mike, first off, you were mentioning that Kinder Morgan isn't exactly the the innocent person in this uh, whole situation. Is They haven't really been following the rules to start with. Yeah, yeah. there's there's one example um, that has been reported from last fall in which they started construction activity without authorization. Um, when the pipeline was approved, it was approved with 157 conditions, including that they follow the permitting process of the federal government, of uh, B.C., of municipalities. So um, there was a situation where they started uh, installing uh, installing mats in in some streams that were uh, that were habitat or spawning habitat of, of of certain fish species, and this is a violation of the rules that they they needed to get the permit, but they decided okay let's uh, you know it's one of those you know uh, ask for permission later uh, uh, sort it's, of things. yeah it's better to ask for yeah <laughs> better ask for forgiveness and then yeah. Um, so, you know, that that situation happened. Uh, the National Energy Board, which was overseeing uh, that ish, that particular permit, ordered them to cease and desist and stop this activity. Uh, so that happened. I mean, they continued for a while. It took several. It might have taken weeks, actually, before before anyone noticed what they were doing and actually got them to stop. Um, and at that point, uh, you know, we're, we're several months later now. They haven't been sanctioned formally in any way. They haven't they haven't been fined. Um, so this is, you know, one example of where, um, you know, if people raise concerns about about this, uh, about whether there are safety issues, certainly, you know, we, they, they would want to see that that the company is following the rules uh, to perhaps reassure them that that this project will be safe. Now, as I had mentioned, you've broken a, a number of angles on this story. And the latest this morning is uh, the environment minister. Uh, McKenna proposing a new scientific panel to review everything. This seems like grasping at straws. 
It's all been reviewed already, has it not? Uh, um, the science has not been reviewed. In, no? in, in, in fact, this is like her own department before this project was approved. In their final arguments to the National Energy Board, Environment and Climate Change Canada said that there were significant gaps in the science and that there was more work that needed to be done to figure out what happens to diluted bitumen uh, when it spills into the ocean. Uh, they recommended that more research was needed on on how to clean it up, how to prepare, how to prepare, how to prevent. Um, and they also recommended that if this work is done, that the proponent, Kinder Morgan, should be the one to pay for it and not taxpayers. And it's not clear that <laughs> that that this is what's going to happen. I mean, you have the federal government now investing money uh, to do this research on behalf of the company, which which amounts to a subsidy. And when the government actually approved the pipeline, they, they didn't set this as, as a condition. So they didn't listen to Catherine McKenna's department. So um, there is a need for additional research. Um, you know, we've we've seen in a, in a case of uh, several years ago when when an Enbridge pipeline uh, ruptured in 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 the Kalamazoo mm-hmm. River uh, in uh, in Michigan that you know the, the 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 first responders didn't quite know how to clean up or how to how to assess this disaster. It. I mean, even years later, there's still there's still apparently yeah. bits of bitumen that are at the bottom of that river that haven't been cleaned up. So what happens if some kind of an accident like that happens in, in, in the oceans or in any of the streams um, that that this new pipeline is going to traverse? Um, you know, certainly uh, there 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 is, um, you know, there is an existing pipeline. There is there is the possibility of tankers right now, but but the volume will increase. The government has also said, you know, that that there are safety conditions in place. Um, the tankers are double hauled and, um, you know, there the risk is low, but that risk is still there, I think. Now, in terms of the the approval process, in reading your article, you, you found or you talked to some folks who think it was sort of set up already. Well, those are the yeah. instructions that they yeah. got. Uh, but while the government was saying we're we haven't made a decision, we're still consulting with First Nations. We're still reviewing the science. The public servants who were providing the research and advice to government were instructed, uh, we need to find a legally sound way to get to yes. And, you know, I've spoken to people who were in the room when those those orders were given. Uh, some of them were in shock. Some of them, you know, were, were, were interested in, in trying to find a way to make this project work, a legitimate way mm-hmm. to review the science and make sure that, you know, everything has been looked at and reviewed. And, and maybe it would have been possible to follow the rules and to have this pipeline approved. But they were told, no, your, your job is not to stop this pipeline or, or to, to provide the full evidence. Your job is just to find a way within the next four weeks. It was with four weeks before they made the announcement that they were told, OK, find a way to do this. So the alternative would have been if the government had decided to take a few more months to, to work on it, uh, to allow the public servants to do their job. And what I've heard is from the people who were in on this decision, 
is that they were told, no, we're not interested in this. We just want to get this approved as quickly as possible because we are afraid, the government is afraid, that if we don't approve it by the date they approved it, the end of November 2016, they were afraid that Kinder Morgan was going to walk away and they were perhaps more worried about the political fallout of such a such a, a decision um, in that then, you know, and we see it now in the House of Commons, the liberals, the liberal government is being attacked right now by the conservatives who say that you are trying to destroy the energy industry, um, that you aren't supporting it. But in reality, um, this is just doing due diligence that this is what the public servants wanted to do in a professional way, I think. In all your coverage of this issue, have you had a chance to sit down with anybody from Kinder Morgan about this? I've reached out on, on a number yeah, of times no. uh, to, to, to ask for interviews, and, and, and they these requests have been declined. I haven't seen Kinder Morgan do I'm not I'm not sure I recall any recent interviews. I think the last one might have been in in the summer of 2016 when when Ian Anderson last did an interview about this. The recent statements that they've made have been controlled. Um, They had a conference call uh, last week, but the only people allowed to ask questions are shareholders or investors, you know, the people who work for the investment banks. So in this setting, they're getting a bunch of lobbed, very easy questions. Certainly, if I had the chance to ask questions, I mean, there, there would be a lot that I would ask about the statements, what they do tell shareholders versus what they what they're telling regulators you know they they told their shareholders a few months ago um you know there are some hiccups but things are going smoothly we're on track to get this built and then all of a sudden they're telling regulators oh there's a big alarm because people are trying to block uh you know the the city of burnaby the bc government um uh, they're suddenly claiming that that they're having problems uh getting stuff approved and in reality also the other thing is that you know they have a thousand permits to get from uh, roughly a thousand, maybe eleven hundred permits to get from from BC to get this project ahead. This is one of the hundred and fifty seven conditions that so they they do need to get these permits from BC, from Burnaby, from from other uh, jurisdictions. They've you know when it comes to BC, they've only applied for half of them. So how can they say if they haven't applied for all you know eleven hundred required permits? You know certainly these are questions. I mean maybe there is valid answers, but it would be interesting to get that. And and in terms of Burnaby. You know, when they complained about Burnaby's, uh, there there is there is legal documents on the record showing that after the pipeline was improved in November, it took them until around June before they started actually talking to Burnaby and 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 applying for these permits. So, again, there there's there's some evidence to suggest that if anyone is dragging the puck on this, well, maybe, you know, we need to ask Kinder Morgan questions about this, uh, about, you know, why weren't they ready right away to start to get get to work and apply for the permits and start construction after they got the approvals? You think this will lead to a constitutional crisis? Uh, I don't, uh, I don't think we're there yet. I think I think the key thing right now is that there there is there is a legal challenge before the Federal Court of Appeal related to the actual approval. And I mean the BC government's move, I mean it's uh, I, I I don't know if it's the most important thing right now, if it's more important than the fact that you have a group of First Nations who say that the government didn't consult them in a meaningful way. Uh, you know, the rule of law in this country, uh, Section 35 of the Constitution, requires the government to consult 
First Nations in a meaningful way. And the courts will decide uh, whether whether they've done that or not. The, the decision I think we're expecting um, could be any day now, could be before before the end of June. Once that decision comes out, whether it's an acceptance of the federal approval or a rejection, I think I think it's very likely that whichever side loses is going to appeal. And that means we're probably waiting another few months or more likely years before this is settled in the courts. And and maybe, you know, that's that's what Kinder Morgan probably doesn't want. They want certainty. They want to know for sure they can go ahead. So that uncertainty could be the key factor here that um, might be might be what stops this project from going ahead, at least under its current ownership of, of Kinder Morgan. Mike, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Head. Mike D'Souza is the managing editor of the National Observer, who's been all over this story, breaking many angles. The Trans Mountain Kinder Morgan pipeline is turning into a war between provinces and, in some cases, indigenous communities. The Texas-based company's line in the sand is May 31st. Federal Finance Minister Bill, Bill Morneau has been dispatched to discuss ways to alleviate the company's concerns over the project. Here on Unpublished Cafe, we'll be keeping close tabs on the issue and we'll revisit any twists and turns in this saga. I'm Ed Hand for the Unpublished Cafe. Thanks for listening.